Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So, as has already been mentioned, today is what has been called for centuries now uh, by Christ followers, Palm Sunday. And, and if you don't know what that means, it marks um, Christ's final entry into Jerusalem. And it began uh, the week uh, in which he would end up dying by the end of that week and then rising again. And it gets its name from um, what happened on that day. As Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, a kind of a whole parade of his followers and crowds of people came out and they cut down branches, uh, palm branches, and waved them over him like, you know, in celebration as he came in. And some laid them down on the ground as he walked over and, and came through. And, and that's where the, the idea of Palm Sunday comes from. And I remember as a kid uh, growing up pretty much in church in our Sunday school class, we made these little construction paper, green construction paper palms, and we put a stick on them and we all waved them when we practiced the parading around our Sunday school classroom. And it didn't dawn on me what the significance of that day was all about. And, and maybe that's true for you. You know, what, what's the big deal about people waving palm branches 2,000 years ago? I don't get it. Um, well, because on that day, Jesus was making an incredible statement. And by that, those actions and how that all transpired, he was making a statement about himself. And the one who at his birth, it was declared, the king of Israel is coming. Now, now as he makes his way into Jerusalem, he is making a statement, the king has come. And, and what does that mean for you and me? Because we often talk about Jesus as our Savior and how he forgives our sin and went to the cross and died on our behalf so we could be forgiven of our sin. We talk a lot about Jesus as our Savior, but what does it mean for him to be king? Because he's not just your Savior. Before he became your Savior, he entered Jerusalem as the king. And he is not only your Savior, he is your king. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a follower of King Jesus, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, that's written um, about actually in all four of the Gospels. We're going to look primarily at Luke's Gospel today. But let me tell you, just kind of read the story. And this is what happened on that day. If you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, If you've got a smartphone or tablet, verse 29. Uh, If you're old school, you know, using paper, that's cool too. Uh, Verse 29, this is how uh, Luke writes about the story. It says that as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. And those who were sent went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and 
you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That was a pretty eventful day. Just one day in the life of Jesus. And, and in this story, he seems so out of character from what we know of Jesus and what we see throughout the rest of the Gospels. And, and the reason is because he was making a pretty incredible statement. And I'm coming, and I'm coming as king. And what that means for you and me 2,000 years later to declare him as king over our lives is a couple of implications. I think first of all, it means that he sets the agenda. He sets the agenda for my life. And there will be times, there will be times when his agenda does not match yours. There will be times when his agenda is pretty tough to figure out what he's doing right now. And it's sometimes confusing and it sometimes doesn't make sense. But see, the disciples were kind of used to that. It says in, in verse 30 that Jesus called two of his disciples and he gave them these instructions. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a few questions. You see, to take somebody's colt, to take somebody's donkey, that was a huge thing because that was their livelihood. That was everything. To them. That, was, that was their transportation. Um, that was how they hauled their goods to market to be able to sell. It's, it's the donkey is what they used to plow their fields so they could raise the crops to bring to sell. It was, it was their livelihood. It was like taking away their, 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 their car, their truck, and their trailer all at once. And I would have some questions about that. Like, okay, if somebody asks, you mean somebody's going to ask? <laughs> and, and, and you think they're going to be okay when I just say, well, the Lord needs it. I don't think so. And what if nobody's there? I mean, do we, like, do we leave a note or something? I mean, what if we, this is a strange request. This is a strange instruction that just doesn't make much sense. But like I said, Jesus did that all the time to these guys. There's an account in the Gospels where there were 5,000 people gathered to listen to Jesus. And he had talked and taught all day long. And it was getting close to dinner time. And disciples were kind of getting nervous about the whole thing. And they went to Jesus and said, got it. Okay, it's time Time's running out. It's almost dinner time, and we got to get these people home so they can have their dinner. Jesus turned to them, and you know what he said? You feed them. Huh? Wait, we could work, all of us could work like for half a year and not raise enough money to be able to feed these people one drop, one bit of bread. How are we going to feed them? But Jesus uses them, performs a miracle. There's another account where these guys are in a boat, and they're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, it's been a long day again. He's been teaching. He's down in the boat, sleeping on a cushion, like down in the, at the bottom of the boat there. And, and these, you know, half these guys were fishermen, okay? So they knew what it was like to be out on the water in a storm. But this storm came up that even they were afraid because the water was splashing in. It was starting to threaten to sink the boat. You know, they couldn't keep the sail. It was just everything was falling apart, and they're all nervous. And so they, they wake up Jesus because he's sleeping through the whole thing. They wake him up and say, Master, don't you care? Don't you care that we, don't, that we die? And Jesus got up, calmed the storm, turned and said, Why were you afraid? Well, because like we were about to go down. I mean, <laughs> they, you know, all these, he did this all the time. 
And in this instance, what he's doing is, what he's doing is he is setting the agenda for the day. And when it comes to God's agenda for your life, it's all about trust. That's what it means. To give him and let him set the agenda for your life, that is all about trust. What Jesus was doing here is something very, very specific. And Luke doesn't kind of give us all the insight. Matthew does, though. If you turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. In other words, this had been part of God's plan for centuries now. Matthew is quoting one of the prophets, Zechariah, who centuries beforehand said, when the king comes, he's going to come, but he's going to be coming riding on a donkey. He just had something very, very specific in mind. This was all part of God's plan and had been part of his plan. From all, and that's what, that Jesus is setting the agenda. He's letting people know he's coming as the king. Now, again, his agenda doesn't always match your agenda. I have found throughout my life, God has a different agenda than I do. And his timing, his timing is never the same as mine. And I get so worked up and I get so frustrated and I get so, you know, I just worked into you know, just a fit, you know, over stuff that he's got under control all the time. And every once in a while, every once in a while, he just kind of, it's like he just pulls back the curtain and lets me know he's got everything under control. Silly example of that. Just two weeks ago, we had made all these plans that we were going to give everybody a tour of the new building. And so we had, we had made all the plans with all the preparations. We'd lined it all up with the contractor, make sure the place is ready to go. All this stuff was set in motion. And, and our whole staff had gone down to a conference down in Southern California. So we were gone like the last half of the week. We got home Friday night, went out and looked, and the rest of the concrete had been torn up. So all there was was gravel, and, and of course, then it rained. And it was pouring rain, and there was mud out there, and it was a mess. And we thought, how are we going to bring all these people through to give them a tour of the building? We can't even, we can't get over there. And, and how are people going to get from the parking lot even into this building? It was just, it was totally a mess. And we were all freaked out about it. And most, uh, most of the staff spent Saturday cleaning the place up and getting it ready as best we could. And, and we made an emergency phone call to one of the members of our church, Rob DeSimone. He owns a carpet one store down in Livermore. And we called Rob and we said, Rob, Rob, do you have any scrap of carpet laying around that you could bring that we could lay out for people? Because it's a mess up here. And it's going to be pouring rain again tomorrow. And we just got, and I got here Sunday morning and laying out was all this carpet because it just so happened that that week, he had done a commercial job and it ripped out some carpet. It happened to be red carpet. <laughs> it happened to have been cut in four foot wide swaths and it happened to be just enough to get from the parking lot to the patio. Now, that's a stupid little thing. And you go, God doesn't care about that. You know what? I, I have no doubt. Because I get so worked up and I get so frustrated and I get so worried and so anxious about so many things. And it's like, it's just one of those silly little things that God says, it's under control. <laughs> it's my agenda, not yours. And I found that over and over and over again in my life and in the ministry. And it wasn't just little things like this. Sometimes it was huge things. And we got to places where I thought, God, what are we going to do? I have no idea what to do next. And got it under control because see when you make him king of your life he sets the agenda not you 
And what's, what's interesting here is it says that when they went there, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. It's under control. It's under control. He sets the agenda. And he becomes your final authority. You see, that's what it means to make him king. Now, that's not something that we fully appreciate because kings in our day don't have all that much authority. Kings and queens in our day, they're pretty much figureheads. You know, they just come out for special occasions. You know, then we put them back away in their castles or whatever, okay? And, and of course, in the country we live in, um, they're not like absolute rulers for life. Like every four years, we get to choose our leaders, even if we don't like the choices. <laughs> But every four years, we get a chance to choose. And if we don't like the guy that's in office, in four years, we can vote them out. And if we decide we like them, he still only gets to stay for eight years. Because we go through our leaders all the time. We don't recognize what it means to be a king. Because in the ancient times, when king was king, king was king. When, when the king's in charge, what he says goes. Nobody questions it. Because he's the authority. Jesus is making his entry into Jerusalem, and he is coming as that king. It says that the whole crowd of disciples went out to, uh, joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what they are doing is they are quoting one of the Psalms, Psalm 118. It's one of the verses in, in, in the, uh, Psalm 118. And, and what's interesting about that, that's actually one of the most messianic of the psalms more prophetic about israel's coming messiah and and in that line the line that they're quoting actually doesn't say blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord it says blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord but what's implied in psalm 118 they take to heart and they say it out loud blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord because they recognize now it's not the kind of king they expect he doesn't come riding on his great steed and a big horse, you know. He comes riding on a donkey. What kind of king is that? See, because in ancient times, when a king went out to war, he rode a horse. Biggest, baddest horse he could find. And he went out with his foot soldiers and his army. And he went out with his chariots and, and his cavalry. And they went out to war. But when a king came on a donkey... He was coming in peace. Jesus is making a statement. He is the king, but he's not the king you expect. See, there was another parade that happened that same Passover. We know this because we know that Pontius Pilate was in town in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, here's the thing. Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in a town called Caesarea out on the coast because he knows coastal living is much better than living inland, Okay. Wasn't particularly crazy about, about Jerusalem or all that. He liked living out on the coast. But when it came to the high holy days, when it came to the Jewish festivals, they made a point to be present there. Because Passover, Passover was a celebration of Israel's liberation from another empire centuries beforehand. And this was a dangerous time of year. And so when Pilate would come, he would come with his entourage, representatives of the empire, to remind everybody who's really the king. And when he came through the gate... His parade was full of chariots and horses and foot soldiers and cavalry. And he was showing his strength. He was letting everybody know, don't get too carried away with your celebration because I'm here to enforce the law. 
what I says go. See, this is the emperor's kingdom. His kingdom come. His will be done. And the other end of town, there's a little parade of ragtag people and a king riding on a donkey. It's not what people wanted. But he was setting the agenda and he was claiming his authority. And when it comes for him making the king of your life and giving him authority, that is all about obedience. You see, kingdom, kingdom is where what you say goes. And when I make him king of my life, that means what he says goes in every area of my life. In my attitudes, in my behavior, in my relationships, with my finances, my sex life, with every aspect of my life. See, if he's king, then he's the final authority, and that means what he says goes, and I obey. The problem is, every one of us have a little kingdom problem. (laughs) And it started when you were about two years old. You know this. Any of you who have raised a two-year-old, anyone who are raising a two-year-old right now, anybody who's just observed somebody raising a two-year-old knows this. What are the two favorite words of a two-year-old? Mine and no. Yeah, everybody knows that. What are those two words about? Kingdom. No. What I say goes. This is my kingdom. No. Mine. This is my stuff. This is my kingdom. It starts when you two years old, and it continues all the way through. You, you, you go for a trip with your kids. They're grown now. They're sitting in the back seat. What is the first thing they do? They stake out their territory. You stay on your side. This is my side of the car. You stay on your side. He's touching me, Dad. He's touching me. What's that all about? Kingdom. And of course, everybody knows who's truly the king of the car. It's Dad. And Dad has an army. Well, he's got a hand and an army, (laughs) and he enforces his kingdom. (laughs) See, we've all got this kingdom problem. When you put your life in his hands, you make him king. When you make him king, it means obedience. It's his authority now. What's interesting is they're making this proclamation, and they don't understand the kind of kingdom But even though they don't understand it, Jesus doesn't stop them from proclaiming it. They don't even know the words that are coming out of their mouth. They don't even know the depth of meaning behind all the things that they are shouting. But Jesus does. And and he doesn't stop them, even though they don't really get it. In fact, it says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. Shut them up. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet... The stones will cry out. In other words, there's no stopping this kingdom. It's coming. You make him king of your life. He sets the agenda. He becomes the authority. And he's given all access. Jesus gets into Jerusalem. And the first place he goes is to the temple. And when he gets there, what he finds in the temple is a marketplace. All these booths and kiosks all set up all over court of the Gentiles, buying and selling, money changing. Now, what happens is, would you understand, 
this actually started out as a pretty good idea. See, because at Passover, pilgrims made their way from wherever they were in Jerusalem. People would make their way to Jerusalem. That was, you had to spend at least once in your life, you had to do Passover in Jerusalem. But when you came into Jerusalem and you went to the temple, you had to come and offer your sacrifice. But if you're coming from a long distance, that's a long ways to carry or, or, or drag along behind you whatever it is you're going to sacrifice. And so what was set up in their court of the Gentiles was a place where people could actually buy their sacrifices so they could offer them to the Lord. And the money changes, if you're wondering what that's all about, it's because if you offered, if you bought something to offer in sacrifice, you couldn't do it with the Roman denarius because that was unclean. And you couldn't offer and you couldn't pay your tithe. You couldn't give to the temple with a Roman denarius. It had to be a Jewish, Jewish shekel because that was the temple coinage. And so the whole idea behind it was, we're going to make it convenient for people to come. They can, they can do their sacrifice. They can change their money and offer their tithe. They can do all that. And we're just going to be helping out. But what happened over the years is it became very corrupt. It became very profitable. And so when they did the exchange rate, there was a little more profit involved. And when it came to buying the animal for sacrifice, you know, the prices went up at Passover time because it's supply and demand, you know? That's how it works. Whatever the market will bear. And the ones who were making the profit on all of this was the family of the chief priest whose name was Annas. And in fact, Josephus, the historian, talks about this going on in the temple. And they, they, they referred to the, what was going on there as the marketplace of Annas. He was the one who was profiting from it. That's why Jesus is so upset. This bothers him more than anything else. It says, when he entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, that's what's happened. And this seems so out of character from what we know about Jesus. I mean, what happened to the donkey riding Jesus? (laughs) What, What happened to that gentle, peaceful, humble king, you know, all of a sudden it's like he's turned around because what he sees going on there bothers him greatly, bothers him greatly that the one who's getting the most out of this is the one who should have been representing the people before God. And what made it even worse with all this happened in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now the court of the Gentiles was a part of the temple that only, if, you, if you were not Jewish, you couldn't, you couldn't go any further into the temple. That was as far as you could go. So the court of the Gentiles was filled with people who were God-seekers, who didn't know much about God. But they came to temple because they were seeking, or they were new converts to Judaism. And so you have all these God-seekers, all these new converts, they come to the temple, and what they see is a market. And you say, This is not what this place is supposed to be. And it so upsets him that he turns over everything and gets them all booted out of the place. And what's interesting about the whole thing is nobody stops him. It's just one guy. But nobody stops him. Because everybody knows he's right. Don't mistake Christ's humility for indifference. He cares very deeply about what you do with your life. When it comes to this, it's all about surrender. All about surrender. When I give him all access, that means all access of every part of my life. I surrender to him. 
See, here's the thing. We all love the donkey riding Jesus. But the turning everything upside down in the temple Jesus, that kind of offends us. We all love Jesus who is meek and mild and just loves and cares. But when he starts messing stuff up in our lives, we don't like him so much. But here's the thing. He wasn't just throwing a temper tantrum. The reason behind it, and that's what he says. He says, because this was intended to be a place of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. And that's what happens in our lives. Sin starts so innocently, but it starts to take hold. And it gets worse, and it gets worse. And when Christ comes as king and you surrender to him, he comes and he's going to stir things up. But the whole purpose, the whole purpose, whatever he stirs up in your life is to restore you to your original intent. That's why he was so upset. Because they'd taken something wonderful, turned it into something altogether different. And that's what happened in your life and that's what's happened in my life. When Christ comes and we let him be king, he gets all access. And he gets to make the changes that need to be made. He comes to restore. He comes to rebuild. He comes to renew. And our part in all this is to repent, which simply means to let go of the way that I'm living my own life and choose to live following him. And I know that's kind of scary. That's a little uncomfortable. But here's what you've got to understand. Whatever he does in your life is always to restore you to your original purpose, your original intent. And we know this. We know this. We know this actually even from this story because long before Jesus turns everything upside down, on the outside of the city, as he looks on the city, he weeps. And it's not like he just shed a little tear. The word there is a very strong, as if you know, deep, from deep within. He's heartbroken over what's going on. He is heartbroken at what's become of the city of God. He wants to restore it to its original intent, and he does so. Because here's the thing. Whatever he asks of us as our king is nothing less than what he did for us. On the last night when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he prayed. What did he pray? Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. Father, you set the agenda. You're the authority. And I am surrendering my life fully for your use. See, that's the heart of God for you. The heart of God for me. And making him king, it's a scary thing. It's a little upsetting. It's a little bothersome. It's all of that. But it's only to restore you, restore me to his original intent. And by the end of that week, he would do all of that so that we would know him. Would you bow your heads with me? He came as our rescuer, our savior. But he also came as our king. And that means he gets to set the agenda. He's the final authority. And he gets all access. And it may be that you're here today, and there's a part of your kingdom that you've been holding back. 
It's like, okay, Lord, I give you my life, but, but not this little part. This I keep to myself. This, this part, this is my kingdom. Don't touch it, please. He says, no, 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 you, you got to give it all. If you're here today, and there's a part of your life that you've been holding back from his kingship in your life, can I encourage you today? Surrender. Let go. The one who created you, who knows you best, who loves you most, and has always, always your best interest at heart. Surrender to the king who gave his life for you. And I know that's a difficult thing. And I know just making a decision on a Sunday morning carries all kinds of implications for the rest of your life. But if you will today surrender some part of that life that you've been holding back, he will restore it to its original intent. And I would love the chance to pray for you today as we close. So if that describes you in any way, and you're willing to say, God, today I surrender. Would you just raise your hand, hold it up for a moment, and as you do, actually look up and catch my eye, because I want to acknowledge you and tell you I'm praying with you. Yeah, 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 yep, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're here, and it's a first-time decision pretty much running your life your way and if you're honest about it you would know it's not working out so well you've made enough mistakes had enough failures enough faults that you need the grace of God to forgive you that's why he went to the cross and you can today take a first step of faith it's just simply acknowledging Lord I'm not good enough and I've got this baggage this sin and I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? I am putting my life in your hands. And if for you, it's a first-time decision today. Same thing. Would you just raise your hand and hold it up? Catch my eye. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm just going to invite you to make this your prayer. Whether it's a first-time decision or, or letting go of some aspect of your life, it's simply this, Lord, here I am with my faults, my failures, my rebellion, my sin, my little kingdom. And I'm giving it up today. Lord, I am putting my faith and my trust in you that you have my best interests of heart, that that your agenda is better than my agenda. And I want to be obedient to you, so I surrender. Would you take me the way that I am right here, right now? Forgive me. Let your grace wash over me, renew me, restore me. I repent. Give up. I'm putting my life in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. You may-